الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين رب شرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما إن شاء الله tonight we will start with the biography of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and there are so many benefits in studying the life and the mission and the struggles of our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent him as a messenger for this ummah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose to send a man a human being instead of an angel it shows that we are required to emulate him and to follow his example because if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had sent an angel as a messenger instead then the human beings would say okay these are angels they're able to do what we are not able to do but because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent a messenger we are required to follow him and we have no excuse not to follow him and his example is the best example لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنَةٌ لِمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُ اللَّهَ وَالْيَوْمَ الْآخِرَةِ وَذَكَرَ اللَّهَ كَثِيرًا Surely you have in the Messenger of Allah a good example for those who desire Allah and the last day and those who remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala often so by studying the seerah, the life of the Prophet ﷺ, we learn how to follow in his footsteps. By knowing how he lived his life, we know how to live our life. And another benefit in studying the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ is it is something that acts as such a boost to your iman. When you read about the Prophet ﷺ and the different incidents in his life, the way he received revelation, the way he dealt with people, the way that he struggled for this ummah, just reading about his life, it just increases you in love for him. Nobody can read the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ and not increase in their love and respect for him. And this even goes for people who are not Muslims. Any non-Muslim, who reads about the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Wallahi, they will not be able to read it except with an increase of respect and honor for him that they hold in their hearts. And this is something that is easily visible. Even the non-Muslims who study about the life of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, they have nothing but praise for him and respect for him. So this is one of the great benefits of studying the seerah of the Prophet wasallam, is that in, in, it increases our love for him. And loving the Prophet wasallam is part of our iman. And you cannot have true, complete iman unless you love the Prophet wasallam. And by loving him, I mean you love him more than your father, you love him more than your mother, you love him more than your children, you love him more than your spouse. You love him even more than you love your own self. You love him even more than you love your own self. And the Prophet said, None of you will have true, complete iman until he loves me 
more than he loves his father and his child and all of mankind. So studying the seerah, studying the life of the Prophet ﷺ is one guaranteed way to increase in your love for the Prophet ﷺ. Another great benefit of studying the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ and studying his life is that it helps you to understand the Qur'an. The Qur'an is the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But how do we see the Qur'an in practice? How do we see the Qur'an actually being implemented? We see it through the character of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We see its implementation in the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. One time some people came to Ummul Mu'mineen, Aisha radiallahu anha, and they asked her, how was the character of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? How was the khuluq of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? And then she answered them by saying, don't you read the Qur'an? Don't you read the Qur'an? Why do you need to ask me this question? If you read the Qur'an, you will know the answer to this question. Kana khuluquhu al-Qur'an. His character was the Qur'an. So if you want to see the actual practical implementation of the Qur'an in someone's life, then you look at the life of the one to whom it was revealed, the Prophet Muhammad Another thing is that there are some ayat in the Qur'an that you will not be able to fully understand unless you know the situation or the the time in the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that that ayah was revealed for example Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says innaka la tahdi man ahbabta walakinna allaha yahdi man yasha Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this ayah to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam innaka la tahdi man ahbabt surely you do not guide whom you love surely you cannot guide the one whom you love but Allah guides whomever He wills. This is an ayah, and what I just said is the translation of that ayah. But to fully, really comprehend the gravity of this ayah, you have to know what the situation was when it was revealed. The uncle of the Prophet Muhammad Abu Talib, Abu Talib defended his nephew. The Prophet ﷺ, he defended him from harm. Abu Talib, he was one of the leaders of the Quraysh. He was a very powerful man. So when anyone wanted to harm the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ for his da'wah, Abu Talib would be a shield in between that person and the Prophet ﷺ. He would not let anyone touch his nephew. Even though he didn't become a Muslim. Abu Talib did not accept Islam. Because he didn't want it to be said about him that this person left the religion of his father and his grandfather. He didn't want that to be said about him after he passed away. So he defended the Prophet ﷺ and he helped him a lot throughout his period in Mecca. From when the Prophet ﷺ proclaimed his messengership in Mecca up to the end of the Meccan period when Abu Talib died. Abu Talib was a great help to the Prophet ﷺ. So of course the Prophet ﷺ had this honor and had this love for his uncle. First of all, he's his uncle. He's a blood relation. And secondly, he helped him so much. Now when Abu Talib was about to die, he was on his deathbed. 
the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Oh my uncle, say La ilaha illallah. Say La ilaha illallah. Just give me something that I can intercede with, uh, uh, with Allah on your behalf on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Just say these words and I will intercede on your behalf with Allah on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Just say La ilaha illallah. But Abu Jahl and some of the other kuffar of the Quraysh were also present at the time. And they said, Oh, Abu Talib, are you going to leave the religion of your father? Are you going to leave the religion of Abdul Muttalib? And then Abu Talib died. And the last thing that he said was, I die on the religion of Abdul Muttalib. And he passed away. So how do you think the Prophet ﷺ felt about that? Of course, it was very saddening to him. It really, really caused him a lot of pain to see his uncle die in such a way on disbelief. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this ayah. إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتَ وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَاءُ Surely you cannot guide whom you love, but Allah guides whom He wills. Now think about it. If you just know this ayah without knowing the story behind it, without knowing the incident from the Prophet wasallam's life behind it, without knowing the relationship between Rasulullah wasallam and his uncle Abu Talib, if you don't know that whole backstory, then you will not fully be able to comprehend the deepness of this ayah. That's why it's important to study the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, to study his life, to study his interactions with other people, to study the different situations that happened in his lifetime. And only through this will you fully be able to understand the Qur'an. So this is very important benefit of seerah as well. And the ilm, the knowledge of asbabun nuzul, the knowledge of the reasons for revelation. Why were certain ayat revealed? What was the situation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose to reveal these ayat? This science of the reasons of revelation, it is part of the seerah of the Prophet And when you study that and when you understand that, it will give you a fuller and more, com more comprehensive understanding of the Qur'an itself. Now, Many teachers, when they start teaching lessons about the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, they may start with their starting point at the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. But to really give a more comprehensive idea of the society that the Prophet ﷺ came into, it's important that we don't start at his birth, but we have to start before his birth to understand what type of a society it was that the Prophet ﷺ came into. What was this society, the Meccan society that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose to send his Prophet ﷺ and start his mission from that place. So we need to go back in history a little bit. Before we start about the birth of the Prophet ﷺ and his, and his youth and his prophethood and his mission, we will go back in history to the civilization of Mecca. We have to talk about the early beginnings of Meccan society and civilization in Mecca. And that traces back all the way to the time of Abu Al-Anbiya, the father of the prophets, Ibrahim salam. And he is known as Abu Al-Anbiya, the father of the prophets, because all of the prophets who came after him, they came from his lineage. Through his son Ishaq salam except for the Prophet Muhammad who came through the lineage of his other son, Ismail alayhi salam. 
So we need to go back to the beginning of the Meccan society. Now, many of you are familiar of the story of why Ibrahim salam went to Mecca in the first place. Ibrahim salam originally he was from what is modern day Iraq and then he went to Palestine, that area in Sham. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded him to go from Palestine to Mecca and to take his wife Hajar and his son Ismail salam. He ordered him to take his wife and his son to Mecca, go from Palestine to Mecca. So he took his wife and his son, baby, to Mecca. He left them in Mecca and he turned away and started going back. So his wife, Hajar, she said to him, why are you leaving us here? And she started to follow him and ask him, what are you doing? How can you leave me and my son, our son here like this? You know, there's no one here. There's nothing here. There was nothing there. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes Mecca as wadin ghiri dhi zarr. It is a valley with no agriculture, no vegetation, no water, no nothing, no people, nothing. Just an empty, barren land. So he left his wife and his baby son there and he started to leave. So she was surprised at this, like what's going on here? So she went and she followed him and she asked him, why are you leaving us here? What is this? But he didn't turn back to talk to her. He kept on. He didn't even turn back. So then she understood and she asked him, Allahu amaraka bihaza. Did Allah order you to do this? And then he replied in the affirmative. He said, yes. So she said, Idan lan Allah. If that is the case, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never cause any harm to come to us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will definitely protect us. She was comfortable with that. Once she heard that this was the order of Allah, she had peace in her heart and she felt that relaxation. And that shows the strength of her tawakkul ala Allah, her dependence upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Ibrahim alayhi salam left them there and he went back to Palestine. Now, as we mentioned, this land in Mecca, no vegetation, no water, nothing, no people. It was just Hajar and her son Ismail So the son, the baby, he, be he became thirsty. After some time, he needed some water to drink. So she started going around looking for water. His mother started going around looking for water from the mountain of Safa to the mountain of Marwa. Back to Safa again, back to Marwa, looking anywhere for water. And she left her son in a certain place between those mountains. And Jibreel alayhi salam came down and he hit the earth with his wing and the well of Zamzam sprung forth. So the Zamzam water started gushing forth. And this was a blessing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to these people. So it was a place that had no water and now suddenly Jibreel alayhi salam comes, he hits the ground with his wing and the well of Zamzam springs out. So now they have water to drink, blessed water. And they are able to quench their thirst, walhamdulillah. Now, the Arabian Peninsula at that time, it was inhabited in places from different tribes. But the original Arabs, the origin of the Arabs, is not from different parts of the Arabian Peninsula, but it is from Yemen. The original Arabs, they came from Yemen. That's where the Arabs were first found in Arab. In, in Yemen. 
And they stayed there for a long time and they had a water supply in Yemen. They had a big water supply in Yemen. And they built a dam to, you know, to get the water from the storms and the rain. And that dam was called Sadd Ma'rib. Saddu Ma'rib. The dam of Ma'rib. And that was where the water supply used to come for them. So they used to drink from that water and they built their civilization around that area. Now eventually something happened and that well was destroyed. So they lost that source of water. So that is why the Arabs, they left Yemen. They were, they were originally from Yemen, but once that water supply was gone, that's when they left Yemen. That's when they left into different parts of the Arabian Peninsula in search for water because there can be no civilization without water. So they started moving around the Arabian Peninsula looking for places where they could start a civilization but they needed water for that. So they would go here and there and different places looking for water. So there was a tribe of the Arabs. They were called, the name of this tribe was Jurhum. The name of this tribe was Jurhum and they happened to be around the Mecca area. They happened to be around the Mecca area looking for a place where they could settle and find some water. And while they were passing around Mecca, they saw some birds. They saw some birds and the birds, you know, were going in a certain direction. So they thought to themselves, there has to be water around here somewhere. Because there, there's no way that there can be birds flying around this area except that there has to be water here because birds need water too. So they decided to investigate this. So they looked to where those birds were actually going and they followed it and they found Hajar and Ismail salam, and they found that well of Zamzam, this tribe called Jurhum. And they were honorable people, they were good people. They were people who were noble in their character. So they, they could have, you know, it's just one woman and a baby. They could have easily, you know, took control and kicked them out or did whatever they want, but they saw that, you no, know, this, this well belongs to this woman and her son. We don't have any right to take it without her permission. So they asked for her permission. They said, we would like to build our city around here. We would like to stay here because there is water supply here. Uh, but this is your water. But we would like to you know, pay you a rent so that we can use this water as well. And we would like to stay here. So she said, okay, alhamdulillah. So they started paying her for the use of that Zamzam water. So this was a source of rizq for her. This was a source of, of provision for her and her son, alhamdulillah. And they had their water as well. And the civilization started to flourish, walhamdulillah. So, Ismail alayhi salam grew up in this kind of a society. He grew up amongst the tribe of Jurhum. Now, Ismail alayhi salam and Ibrahim alayhi salam, they were not actually Arabs. They were not from Yemen. They were not from this place. They were not Arabs. They came from Philistine area. But when Ismail alayhi salam settled in Mecca, you know, he, he got married to a woman from the tribe of Jurhum as well. So the children of Ismail alayhi salam are known as Arabs who were, in Arabic they say musta'rab, meaning they were not originally Arabs. Ismail alayhi salam was not originally Arab, but he became Arab by settling there, by marrying into the Arabs, and by living there in Mecca. And he learned Arabic. Arabic was not his language. But because he was born and brought up there in Mecca amongst the Arabs, this tribe of Jurhum, he learned Arabic as well. So this was the beginning of civilization in Mecca. 
Now Ibrahim alayhi salam, we said he went back to Palestine, but he would come every so often and visit his son, Ismail alayhi salam. So he would come and visit every so often and then go back. Come every so often and go back. And eventually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordered him to go back to Mecca and to take his son Ismail alayhi salam and to build a house of worship for the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. So Ibrahim alayhi salam and his son Ismail alayhi salam, they built the Kaaba in Mecca upon the foundations of the Kaaba that was originally built by Adam alayhi salam. And the Kaaba is the first house of worship that was built for the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it was built in the time of Adam alayhi salam. Surely the first place of worship for the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone, it was in Bakka or Mecca. And that was built by Adam alayhi salam. But eventually over time that was destroyed. But the foundations remain. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded Ibrahim alayhi salam with his son Ismail alayhi salam to rebuild the Kaaba upon the foundations of Adam alayhi salam. And at this time, when they were building the Kaaba, Ismail alayhi salam, he was a young, he was a teenager. He was around 16 years old. So, you know, a, a young man helping his father build a house of worship for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. So when he wanted to start the construction, Ibrahim alayhi salam wanted to start building the Kaaba. He wanted a, a nice strong stone to start the construction from the corner. So he sent Ismail alayhi salam, go find a good stone. You know, a good strong stone that we can use to start this structure in the corner here. So Ismail alayhi salam went around looking for a stone, but he didn't find anything that was, you know, appropriate for what his father wanted to do. So he came back to tell his father, I couldn't find anything. But when he came back, he saw that his father had the stone. So he asked his father, where did you get this stone? And then he said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent it to us. This is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is Al-Hajar Al-Aswad. That is what is now known as the black stone. But at that time it was not black. It was actually a white stone. But over time with the sins of the people, it became black. So that's how they started the construction of the Kaaba. They put that stone in the corner and they started building the Kaaba layer by layer. And Ibrahim alayhi salam throughout the construction, he had one, you know, one stand that he would stand upon to look at the Kaaba a little bit from the back during the phases of construction to make sure everything is straight, to make sure nothing is getting crooked. So he would take that, you know, elevated piece and he would take it a little bit far back, not so close to the Kaaba, but he would put it back. And then he would stand upon it to look, to make sure that the construction is going properly and it's being built straight. And that is known as Maqam Ibrahim, the place where Ibrahim alayhi salam stood. And he used to stand there to make sure that the construction was going properly. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us, وَاتَّخِذُوا مِن مَقَامِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ مُصَلَّى And take the maqam, take the standing place of Ibrahim alayhi salam as a place of prayer. And if you go to Mecca now, you will see the position of that maqam Ibrahim. It's not so close to the Kaaba. It's a little bit far back because Ibrahim alayhi salam used that to see, to get a good view of the construction of the Kaaba. Now once he finished building the Kaaba, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him a command. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded Ibrahim alayhi salam, وَأَذِّنْ فِي النَّاسِ بِالْحَجِّ وَأَذِّنْ فِي النَّاسِ بِالْحَجِّ Now call the people to make pilgrimage to this house. So Ibrahim alayhi salam, he was surprised. He was saying, he said, 
I can call to it, I can call, but how are the people going to hear me? Who is going to come? Who is going to hear me? Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala replied to him, إِنَّمَا عَلَيْكَ الْأَذَانِ وَعَلَيْنَ الْبَلَاغِ Surely the call is upon you. We are commanding you to make the call, but the, the reaching of that call to the people, that's upon us. You don't worry about that. You just call and I will make sure that that call is heard. So Ibrahim alayhi salam, he goes to Arafat and he goes on Mount Arafah and he makes the call to Hajj. He calls the people to Hajj. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes that call heard around the world in the east and the west. Everybody hears it. And they answer that call. They start answering that call. And people come from all over the place to make the hajj, to make the pilgrimage to Mecca. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put in the hearts of the people love for this house, love for the Kaaba. So people would come from everywhere and make the pilgrimage to the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone, and they would, they would love this place. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put that love of the Kaaba in the hearts of the people. And through this, through the people coming from all over, you know, making the hajj, making the pilgrimage to the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the religion of Ibrahim alayhi salam, the pure monotheistic religion of Ibrahim alayhi salam, it was spread in this way. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone was worshipped in the Arabian Peninsula. There was complete tawheed of the Arabs. Everybody worshipped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone and no one associated partners with him. And this went on for many years, alhamdulillah. Only tawheed and no shirk in the Arabian Peninsula. After some time, as we mentioned, Jurhum was the tribe that inhabited Mecca. Now there was another tribe called Khuza'ah. And after some years, Khuza'ah and Jurhum, they got into a fight. They got into a battle over who should have control of Mecca, who should have authority of the house of Allah, and who should have authority over Mecca. So Jurhum had been there for many years, since the time of Hajar and Ismail salam, since Ismail salam was a baby. And this went on for many years, but then Khuza'ah, they wanted to fight for that authority. So these two tribes got into a battle. They got into a fight. Khuza'ah and Jurhum. And Jurhum was defeated. The tribe of Jurhum was defeated, and the tribe of Khuza'ah, they took control and authority of Mecca. Now Jurhum, in the face of this defeat, they, they realized that they were defeated and they had lost this battle, but they didn't want Khuza'ah to be so happy with their victory. So what did they do? They buried the well of Zamzam. They buried the Zamzam. And the reason why people had inhabited that area in the first place was because of the Zamzam, because of the water. So what they did was they said, okay, we, we, we don't have control anymore, but you know, we're not going to make it so easy for them either. We're going to bury this well. We're going to bury the Zamzam spring. So they buried it and no more Zamzam. Zamzam was gone. So Khuza'ah, now they had control of Mecca, but they had no water supply anymore. So they had to actually import water from the outside and bring it inside. Now the leader of Khuza'ah, he was a man named Amr ibn Luhay. Amr ibn Luhay. He was the leader of the tribe of Khuza'ah. So he became the leader of Mecca. And he was a man who was very well respected by the people. Nobody disobeyed him. If he said anything, the people would obey him immediately without question. 
It's like what he would say, that's the law. Everybody has to obey it. So nobody thought about disobeying anything that this man said. He was well respected and everybody honored him. So he was the leader of Mecca. Now he traveled at one point in time, he traveled up to Asham, the area of Syria and Palestine. And when he was there, Amr ibn Luhay, when he traveled there, he saw a group of people, a group of people called the Amaliq. These people called Amaliq. And he noticed that they had idols, stones, that they used to worship besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They used to worship different stones. So Amr ibn Luhay, as we mentioned, in the Arabian Peninsula, there was no shirk. Everyone worshipped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. But when he went up there to Sham, then he saw these people worshipping these stones and stuff. So he was surprised. He never saw anything like this before. So he said, what are these things that you are worshipping? What is the purpose of this? They said, yeah, these are, you know, these are our idols. When we're hungry, you know, they provide us with food. When we are in a state of fear or we are oppressed, then they help us. When we are thirsty, when we don't have anything to drink, they provide us with water. So then he said, oh, really? He was surprised at this. So then he said, can you give me one? Can I have one? Because we have a water problem in Mecca, you know. There's no more Zamzam anymore. We need water. We have to get water from outside. So you're saying that these things, if you pray to them, they'll give you water. So can I have one? I'll take it back to Mecca and maybe we can get some water too. They said, yeah, sure. They gave him an idol. They gave him an idol and the name of this idol was Hubul. And he brought this idol back with him to Mecca. This is the first idol that came into the Arabian Peninsula. The idol that was known as Hubul. So when he comes back to Mecca with this idol in his hand, and as we mentioned before, Amr ibn Luhay, he is a person who is obeyed by the people. He comes back with this idol and he tells the people, worship this idol. And they, they, they obey him immediately. They start worshiping the idol. And that is how shirk came back into the Arabian Peninsula. There was no shirk in the Arabian Peninsula and this is the man who brought it back, Amr ibn Luhay. So he orders the people to start worshipping this idol. They start worshipping the idol. Over time, he brings more and more idols. He assigns one idol for each tribe. There are different tribes that are around. And he gives each tribe an idol. So they start worshipping these idols at the Kaaba, at the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And like we mentioned, the Hajj had been going on from the time of Ibrahim alayhi salam's call. Now, it was still going on during the time of Amr ibn Luhay. But he changed the talbiyah. You know the talbiyah, and we still say it today. Labbaik Allahumma labbaik, labbaik la sharika laka labbaik. Inna alhamda wa ni'mata laka wal mulk la sharika lak. Now he added a few words to this. At the end, he said, "La sharika lak illa sharikan huwa lak tamlikuhu wa ma malak." At the end, he said, "La sharika lak." Oh Allah, you have no partner except for the partners that you have, but you own those partners and you own what those partners own. So he said, yes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is still the highest one, but he has certain partners, but he is the owner of what those partners own as well. And he's talking about the idols here. So this is how he introduced shirk. Even into the call for hajj, he introduced shirk into that as well. And then he also said, to the people, if you are ever leaving Mecca, if you ever have to go on a trip outside of Mecca, you must take a stone with you from Mecca. 
You must take a stone with you from Mecca so that while you're outside of Mecca, you worship that stone. You pray to that stone. And when you're in Mecca, you worship the idols that we have here in Mecca. But when you're out of Mecca, you must take a stone with you and worship those stones. So this is how shirk was introduced into the Arabian Peninsula. So after this, the people, they started to lose their sense of tawheed. And they started worshipping these stones and calling upon idols besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the society deteriorated. And before, when Jurhum was still in control of Mecca, there was a situation that happened. There were a man and woman from Yemen. The man's name was Isaf and the woman's name was Naila. And they were in love with each other in Yemen. So Isaf went to the father of Naila and proposed to her, asked for her hand in marriage. But the father of Naila refused. He rejected him. So Isaf and Naila, they were very sad about this. They really wanted to get married. So they made a plan. They said, okay, look, everyone is going for Hajj. Every year people go and make this pilgrimage. So we will go for Hajj as well. And when we're in Hajj, you know, there's so many people there. We can do whatever we want to do and nobody will know what's going on. We can do it without anyone finding out. So they made that plan and they met each other in Mecca at Hajj, at the Kaaba, at the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they did an act of immorality and indecency right there at the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They committed their fahisha, they committed their immorality right there at the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So to punish them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala turned them into stones. He turned Isaf and Naila into stones. Isaf became a stone and Naila, she became a stone as well. So the people, what they did, and this was before shirk came into the Arabian Peninsula. This is still during the time of uh, when Jurhum was in charge, before Amr ibn Luhay. So what the people did with those stones, just so that people will have a reminder that this is what happens when you disobey and disrespect the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what happens to you. To serve as a reminder, they took the stone of Isaf and they put it on Mount Safa. And they took the stone of Naila and they put it on Marwa. So the people would see these stones and they would remember what happened to these people and they would fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They didn't worship those stones or anything. But then when Amr ibn Luhay came and he introduced idol worship back into the Arabian Peninsula, what did he do? What do you think he did? He took those stones, the stone on Safa and the stone on Marwa, and he put them back in front of the Kaaba and he told the people, worship these ones too. So they started worshipping those stones as well. This is how shirk came into the Arabian Peninsula. And it just gives you an idea of the society that the Prophet wasallam, the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, came into. The reason I gave this whole introduction is so you know what kind of a society the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, is being you know, raised in. Which type of society did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to choose to send his final and his greatest messenger. This is the society. And this type of attitude of these people, it lasted all the way up to the time of the Prophet And how do we know that? There is a hadith of one of the companions and he said that when they would leave Mecca, if they would ever leave Mecca, they would take the stone with them. So it was still lasting up to the time right before the Prophet What Amr ibn Luhay what he introduced, it was still going on up to the time of the advent of the Prophet So one of the Sahaba, he mentioned 
that when we would leave Mecca, we would make sure we take our a stone with us. And if we could not find any stone, we would take some dates from Mecca. And we would make those dates into some kind of a statue or something, a figure, and we would worship those dates in, in, in place of stones instead. So he mentioned, he said like, and you know, they realized it after they became Muslims, they realized how ridiculous this was. They said we would take those dates sometimes and make figurines or statues out of them and when we were outside of Mecca we would worship that, we would pray to it, but then we would get hungry and we would find nothing else to eat, so we would eat our God. We would eat what we were just worshipping, just to show the ridiculousness of this type of a belief. This is the Jahiliyyah society that the Prophet Muhammad came into. And the reason why we gave this introduction is so you can see throughout the course, inshallah, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the Prophet Muhammad how he turned these people from the worst of people to the greatest generation of people that mankind has ever seen, the Sahaba, mashallah. How Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala turned them around 180 degrees through his messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And it's important to understand what kind of society it was so you can see the effect that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had on that society. And inshallah we will talk about that and we will continue to talk about the effects of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and his birth next week inshallah. Wallahu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.